It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. Good, e- good evening and welcome. My name is Greg Gwynn and I welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study. This is Thursday night, May the 16th, 2013. We're looking forward to you joining with us in a period of Bible study on the internet tonight. Uh, my name is Greg Gwynn. I'm joined tonight by Monty Overton. Monty, thanks for being with us on the Virtual Bible Study tonight again. Thanks for inviting me. And we got Anthony Petrachko behind the controls, and uh, looking forward to his participation with us as well. Jacob is out tonight, and we're trying to fill in for him. Jacob is sort of our technical guru, keeps us all going in the right directions with all the wires and connections, and we're trying to uh, fly by the seat of our pants so far, uh, in, a, in a manner of speaking tonight, Monty. Figuratively. Figuratively, and and so we hope we can get that done. We've got what I think is sort of an interesting discussion to generate tonight. I actually put out our update a day early because I thought some people might want to have some extra time to think about the the challenge I put out there. This idea was actually suggested to us by uh, our frequent listener, Chris, in England. He had sent in an email sometime back suggesting maybe that we could ask our listeners to present what they imagined to be the most misused Bible passages, verses, or texts. And uh, so we, we put that out yesterday. We usually put our update on Thursday, but we put it out on Wednesday to give you a little time to think about it. We've got some feedback, and we're looking for some more. And so those of you who are listening live, if you want to send us an email, we'll try to monitor our emails uh, while the program is ongoing. Also, we've got the chat room up. And you can give us your suggestions in the chat room. We'll try to monitor that as well. Remember, of course, the ways to contact us during the program. You can call toll-free, 877-381-4567. You can send us an email to questions at collegeview.com, or you can get in the chat room. We've got several folks in the chat room. Several are sort of lurking there anonymously. We'd love for you to participate, and you can do that easily. You can give yourself a name, your real name or a pen name, and uh, begin to make comments in the chat room. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. It's really simple to do. So if you're uh, there at the chat room, give yourself an identity of some sort and begin to participate with us during our discussion of these most misused Bible verses. I guess, Monty, the first thing we could talk about is that this is a serious matter. The idea of misusing the Scriptures is not something to be taken lightly. No, Greg, because if we're misusing the Scriptures, either we're fooling ourselves and we're going to wind up being lost because we're not practicing what the Scriptures teach us, or we're being a false teacher and we're not only going to be lost ourselves, but we're going to leading other people astray. So we've got to, this misusing the Scriptures is a really serious concept. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We maybe got rid of some of that hum just there, <laughs> Monty. We were having a hum in the background. Um, it is a serious matter, and notice what Peter said about it. This is in Second Peter chapter three, beginning verse fifteen. He says, "Account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, 
even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. You get that? They twist the scriptures, or the King James Version there says they, they rest the scriptures or twist them, and they do it to their own destruction. You can be lost over this. Yes. So it, it is a really serious matter and not to be taken lightly. Now, unfortunately, it happens. It happens all the time, and it happens at some common places with some common verses. And now, we obviously can't cover every place where people have had the, the tendency to misuse passages and so forth. But we can hit some of the high points, and that's simply what we're going to do. We've got several email responses. As we said, we're looking for more. And those of you who are in the chat room, please join and give us your suggestions as well. We're going to start out with one that <clears throat> surely would make the top ten list. It showed up on several of our emails. Uh, Keith in Hendersonville, Tennessee, was the first to send it in, and that's John 3.16. Monty, what do you think? All right, it says, John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All right. How, how, how people are going to twist that? Well, people tend to twist that to say that all you have to do is believe, and they that just, even to the extent that it's just some mental assent that they recognize that Jesus was the Son of God, and, you know, they don't do anything about it, but they, they say, well, I believe in Jesus, and they think they're okay. Yeah. Uh, I would agree that this is a a top misused passage for sure, because just as you said, Monty, people are going to use that verse to teach, to definitely try to teach the idea of salvation by faith only, that there's nothing else to do, just believe. Now, the question, the follow-up question has to be, how do we explain to them that that is a misuse of the Scripture? Well, one thing that comes to mind is Jesus was talking to people that believed in God in his day, and... Uh, he said, well, you, believe, you say you believe in God, you've done really good. The, believe in, the demons believe and tremble also. So just saying I believe in God, I'm not doing anything better than what the devil's doing because the devil believes in God. So that's, that's not a just that mental assent that, or rec mental recognition that there's a fact and there's a God in heaven and that Jesus was his son doesn't accomplish anything. Exactly right. James 2, the, the last half of James 2 is a powerful passage against the idea of faith-only salvation. Uh, James says in James 2.18, A man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I'll show thee my faith by my works. And so James is basically saying, the only way you could prove that you really believed is by what you did. It's not enough just to say so. Uh, and then the very next verse, uh, of course, as you referenced, the, the demons believe uh, and tremble. But, of course, they're not saved by just that simple act of faith. The same uh, chapter James 2:24 says, "You see how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only." Those who listen to the virtual Bible study regularly have heard us reference that verse lots of times, but it just simply can't be gotten around. It is not by faith only. So, what did Jesus mean when he said, "God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life?" Obviously, the believing there was more than just mental assent. And I think we we can show that and demonstrate that in lots of the cases of conversion, the book of Acts. Well, I th we can also demonstrate it in this same passage in John chapter 3. If we drop down to verse 19, he's talking about Jesus didn't come to condemn the world but to save it. Verse 19 says, This is the condemnation, that light has come to the world, and men in love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to light, lest his deeds should be exposed. 
but he who does the truth comes to light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So Jesus is in this same context of, of believing in him is, is showing that this, this belief is more than mental assent. It's what you practice. It's what you do. You're either practicing evil or you're practicing the truth. Practice has to do with actions and, and your manner of life. It's not just a mental ascent. Okay. I think you're right. I, I like to go to some of those actual cases of conversion in Acts. For instance, in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer asks, Sirs, this is Acts 16.30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Peter and, or, uh, excuse me, Paul and Silas said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in the house. So they said the same thing that Jesus said. You've got to believe. Now, what did that involve? Well, the next verse says, They spake to him the word of the Lord to all that were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straight way. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. So they said, you got to believe. That belief involved being taught, then him responding with acts of repentance, washing their stripes, the compliance with baptism for the remission of sins. I think this text is so clear that baptism was essential because they went about it at the same hour of the night. The jailer himself taking a great risk to take Paul and Silas out of the prison to baptize them in the same hour of the night. And then at the end of it, he said he was rejoicing, believing in God. He he had the kind of belief that saves after he had done all that stuff. That's right. And obviously there was more than just a simple mental ascent. Because otherwise, they wouldn't have had to spoke the word of the Lord to him and all that was in his house. If it was just believing, it's obviously he had some belief here before they continued to speak the word to him. So if, that, if believing was all it was, then they just said, you've got it, buddy. We're, you're, you're saved now. And all this other stuff would have been unnecessary. Okay. All right. So I, if, if you're going to compile your list with us tonight of those top misused bible verses you can have to put john 316 on there and I, I think we've got a good handle on that i think we can explain it those who would use it to teach faith only salvation are simply twisting the scriptures all right let's go to another one. we got a whole whole bunch of them uh our friend chris in the uk who suggested this topic has sent in just a, a whole wad of verses here money i want to pick some of his i don't think we'll be able to cover them all here's one from jeremiah 29 11 he says, this is misused. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that's Jeremiah 29, 11. And, and Chris goes on to explain, this is used by modern wonderful plan evangelicals for promising vain temporal blessings to potential converts. I, I've never heard it called the, them, I've never heard them called wonderful plan evangelicals. But I have heard them referred to as the health and wealth preachers. Uh, probably the the one in the United States that's best known is this Joel Olstein. I don't know if you've seen that guy, but I mean, that's, I watched uh, him one time. That's about all he does is promises that if you do, if if you'll just trust in God, man, you're going to be healthy and wealthy, and everything's going to be perfect for you. And I, I'm confident, although I couldn't say that I've ever heard him use this verse particularly, I'm confident that he does because that is, as Chris says, that's the way this passage is used. Well, you know, when you think about it, if it's just a matter of believing and trusting in God, I'm absolutely certain that there's no one ever lived trusted God more than Jesus Christ. He had absolute faith and trust and confidence that God was going to resurrect him from the dead, that he was going to return to his place in heaven beside the Father. And, and everything that you could think about in a positive way that way. 
I don't perceive that he had health and wealth. I get the impression as I read the scriptures, he was a man of very humble means, a poor man. He worked hard, and he got beat nearly to death and crucified for his belief and faith in God. So I don't see the health and wealth in that for him. Yeah, yeah. I think you're exactly right. Jesus is the ultimate example there. But I would argue also the Apostle Paul is yeah. an example of somebody who didn't prosper either physically or financially by virtue of being a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was persecuted. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. In Philippians chapter 3, he says in verse 7, beginning, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Before Paul became a Christian, he was rich and prosperous and famous and powerful. And afterwards, he he lost all of that. So it certainly didn't make him healthy and wealthy to be a Christian. So uh, those who teach that doctrine and who would use a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11 uh, are, again, misusing the scriptures. Anthony, you've been quiet over there. Any comments? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. i got to get you. Ooh, i got to get you up here. Is it that one? Uh, let's see. Yeah, yeah sounds yeah, like it. No, yeah, I agree. You know, I, I, especially going back to the John three sixteen. You know, you see that all the time in the what in the football games, people holding up signs or whatever, and everybody knows it. But it's ironic that it's it's misused so much. But um, but also, yeah, the health and wealth thing. I think that's a big. It seems to maybe be going out of fashion a little bit. I don't hear so much about it anymore, but it was big at least, you know, a few years ago. But some of those guys like Joel Olstein, he's still immensely popular. Right. He's got a huge following. That's true. And and what's making him popular is the fact that he makes those kind of promises of, of prosperity if you'll simply put your trust in God. But as we've pointed out, it just doesn't, it just doesn't follow. It doesn't, it's not provable based upon clear case study that you can do in the scripture really that's sort of a worldly doctrine that if you'll just follow god you'll have all the stuff you want yeah uh, a spiritual doctrine is telling us if you'll follow god you can have a home with him in heaven you'll be with god and and on all the things that are entailed in that but what he's saying here if you do right you can have a lot of stuff here well the scriptures and especially the new testament they don't teach that any way shape form or fashion a focus on stuff here the focus is Put Jesus first, and you'll have what you need here, but it's serve God first. All right. Very good. All right. We're t- we've come up to time for our first break. We're going to take that and come back and cover some more of these verses. We want your suggestions. Send us an email, questions at collegeview.com. Give us a phone call, 1-877-381-4567. Or get in the chat room. The chat room is deathly quiet tonight. Uh, we'd be glad for your participation in the chat room, too. So let us hear from you. What do you think are some of the verses that belong in a top ten list of most misused Bible verses? We'll continue right after this break. There's more of the virtual Bible study to come after these important messages. Stay tuned. Here's some quotes worth pondering. He who is good at making excuses is seldom good for anything else. I would rather live my life as if there is a God and die to find out there isn't than to live my life as if there isn't and die to find out there is. Atheism is not nearly the enemy of Christianity that indifferent Christians are. A chip on the shoulder is one of life's heaviest burdens. You will keep on getting what you always got if you keep on doing what you've always done. Your daily life is the truest testimony of your religion. Man, wish I'd said that. Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a suggestion for you and your family. 
Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? The virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. All right, we're back. Uh, a little slow on the uptake there, Anthony. You'll have to holler at me. I'm busy talking about other things and not listening to my cues. So we're talking about most misused Bible verses on the virtual Bible study tonight. We're looking for your input and we'd be glad to hear from you as we discuss different verses. But we'd like to get your suggestion of some of the verses that belong in our list, most misused Bible verses. Um, I'm just going to go through some of these emails and pick up some of the ones that are mentioned. Um, a regular listener in Texas is Ramona. Uh, and she suggests, I'm going to pick one of hers out, Matthew 16, 18 through 19. I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. She says this is used by the Catholics uh, for the, Catholic, the Pope being the head of the Catholic Church that Peter was the first pope and that the church was built upon him. Go ahead, Monty. Well, I don't see anything in there that says or even suggests that the church was built on him or that, and it for sure doesn't mention that uh, Peter had any other, other than being an apostle, had any special authority other any significantly different than what the other apostles had. It's just talking about his faith and this confession that he's made that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's saying upon that, the church be built, and really, that's truly that's what the church is built on: that knowledge and ascent and and service of Jesus as the Son of God. Yeah, the context of that statement, I think, and I gotta agree that it's it's it seems like it's an awkwardly worded section in the English, I, and, and I'm I'm not a Greek scholar, so I couldn't tell you whether a Greek student would suggest uh, that it's awkwardly worded or not. But in the English, it seems awkwardly worded. Uh, it's, uh, it's, but, but the context of it is, is that Jesus is asking about who do men say that I am. If you back up to verse 13, this is Matthew 16:13. Uh, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? So that's the context. The context is what is the identity of Jesus? They said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, uh, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but whom say ye that I am? Well, in other words, people are saying different things about you, Jesus. Jesus said, okay, but who do you think I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. Up to that point in time, there's no doubt that the whole discussion here is about Jesus's identity, who he is. I say to you, and, and he says, I say unto you that thou art Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, I really think, and again, I, I have to admit, I think it's awkwardly worded, at least in the English construction. But I, I believe what Jesus is saying there is, just as you are Peter, I am who you said I am. I am the Son of the Living God, and upon this rock, upon the I, upon my identity as the Son of the Living God, I will build my church. I really believe that's the right explanation of the text. You've probably heard, some of you at least have heard that there in verse 18, the word for Peter. Uh, literally suggest a little pebble or rock. Uh, and when Jesus said, thou art Peter, thou art a pebble or a rock. And upon this rock, upon this boulder, it's a different word with a different con, uh, connotation. Upon this huge rock, 
my identity as the Christ, I will build my church. Uh, that's the way that that's built. It is vastly misused. And Ramona is probably right. This this has to rank up there among the most misused verses because think how many millions of Catholics there are worldwide who would go to that verse to justify their practice of having a pope in Rome claiming that Peter was the first one. Now that you don't see anything there that puts Peter in any special circumstance or any special position other than the fact that he happened to be the one that Jesus was speaking to here. Yeah. yeah. But we know we have the same confession that he was the Christ, the Son of God, from the Ethiopian eunuch. He's, he said the same thing. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but nobody tries to make him a leader of the church. I mean, yeah. But he said the same thing. Yeah. Or even doubting Thomas when he, after, you know, he, he said, I won't believe that Jesus resurrected till I see him myself, basically, mm-hmm. till I touch the, the print of the nails in his hands and so forth. When he did, he confessed, my Lord and my God. Yeah. So he made the same confession that, that Peter made. Why don't we make Thomas the first pope? And if it's just by virtue of that confession, we could have that job. Yeah. I mean, we believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ, just like Peter did. But of course, the the, the Catholics have chosen this passage because Jesus, because they're they're twisting the scriptures. Mm-hmm. That when Jesus said, "I'll build upon this rock, I'll build my church," they're trying to make that rock Peter. The rock was the identity of Jesus as the right. Son of God. All right, very good. Uh, put that one down. I think that's a. I think Ramona's right. That one belongs there. Got an, uh, an email from Rodney, uh, and Rodney has sev- suggested several. Pick one of his. He picks Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think maybe the King James actually says Christ who strengthens me. Uh, have you got that one? The new King James says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, and I think that's very similar to the King James or, or identical to King James. It says says... Uh, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, he says, he goes on to say, this verse is used for all kinds of challenges, but its immediate context is about contentment in any and all circumstances. Uh, By far a greater challenge than passing a test or running a foot race. What Rodney is saying is people will take that and say, so so you here's the classic picture. Here's this guy who's just pummeled his opponent in the boxing ring. I mean, his opponent is just a bloody, bleeding mass over there in the corner, has been knocked out and is just groggily coming to. And here's this guy dancing around the ring, celebrating that he's been able to beat this guy to a pulp. And he give, he's giving God the credit and then maybe using a verse like this, saying mm-hmm. that he's been able to do it because God gave him the power to do it. So Ronnie is suggesting that people use that concept to cover all kinds of things in the material world when the con- when the concept being stated by Paul was spiritually, through Christ we can be victorious spiritually. I used to work in some network marketing programs, and uh, never was successful in any of them, but often this verse would be quoted when people would be talking about difficulties they was having at be su- being successful in this, and they'd say, the ones that had been successful would say, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They sold a lot. They would, Yeah, they would sold a lot of stuff. And I've heard it in other aspects like he's talking about, but it's not talking about that. Paul's talking about enduring persecution. He says, I can do it through Jesus who strengthens me. Exactly. Any thoughts on that, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, um, that I've seen that misused quite a bit. You know, I growing up, uh, you know, there was like the uh, what the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, for example. I think, you know, this passage and other ones about, you know, soaring like eagles and things like that. These were big passages that, uh, you know, I agree, I think are used um, you know, with a physical and a material uh, focus, when really that's not 
not what he's talking about. I mean, of course we should we should trust in God and and we should we should pray to God and cast our cares uh, before Him. But I don't think that's the the main thrust of that verse. All right, all right. So uh, again, if we're looking to put one up there on the misused list, let's add that one. All right, in the chat room, we finally get some chatter in the chat room. Jacob, who's not with us tonight, is in the chat room, and he says, I know you'll have Matthew 7, 1 on your list. Uh, Anthony, who's running the board, responds, it's got to be one of the top three. I think it is, and it did show up on several of our uh, email responses. So let's cover that one. We've talked about this lots of times on the virtual Bible study. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Uh Joshua in Kokomo, Indiana, says this is often used as a blanket statement forbidding any and all judgment. It's refuted by Jesus himself within the broader context of verses 1 through 6. We were just talking about this Sunday morning in our Bible class, Monty. Verse 6 says, don't cast your pearls before swine. I'd have to make a judgment. That's right. Within the same paragraph, I'd have to make, or at least the very next paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount, I'd have to make a judgment as to what... When does my teaching or preaching effort constitute casting pearls before swine? Yeah, and it it talks about removing the plank from your own eye in verse 5 so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, if if I can't make some kind of judgment, how am I going to know he's got a speck in his eye to begin with? How do I know he's got something that he needs to correct if I can't make some kind of judgment? And and then later in the same same sermon... uh, Jesus said concerning, he said, beware of false prophets, verse 15. Uh, he says, by their fruit ye shall know them, verse 20. Mm-hmm. That's a judgment. That's making a judgment. In the margin of my Bible, by Matthew 7, verse 1, I have written Matthew seven twenty four, and Joshua mentions that as well. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Jesus actually taught us that we must judge righteous judgment. So i got to agree uh, that that's a very badly misused one. Chris in Atlanta has that on his list. He says it's perverted to say we should not judge anyone uh, for any reason. And Anthony, uh, who's running our board, you sent in a bunch, Anthony, and you said that uh, that's probably tops on your list. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, so often I see that. I remember, um, and like you said, we were talking about this in Bible class here at College View recently, but I remember a long time ago, I don't know why, I was watching uh, what the Sally Jesse Raphael talk show or whatever, and, oh, buddy, she she was just throwing that out. Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not every, you know, and my that's just always is, stuck with me. My guess is that if she was challenged, she couldn't find that in her Bible. If she oh, had to, no, no. You know, most of the people who reference that wouldn't have any idea where to find that in the Scripture and wouldn't know who said it. Of course, Jesus is the one who said it, but they would be completely ignorant of the context in which he said it. Uh, it's really easily answered, Money. I think it's not, it's not hard. In the context of what he's talking about, he's referring to the, Pharisees and others that are making hypocritical judgments. People that were doing some horrible things themselves but condemning others for doing, when you use that example of a plank and a speck, people that other people was doing relatively small wrongs compared to what these people were doing, but yet they were considering themselves so much above them that they was ready to ridicule them for what they were doing wrong and wasn't even at all concerned about fixing the problems in their own life. And so that's what he's saying here is... Don't be a hypocrite about your judgments. If you, you know, because he says whatever judgment that you use, whatever standard you're using, you're going to be judged by that same standard. So if we're going to be critical of other people for whatever their wrong is, 
we need to make sure that we've got that corrected in our life, too. All right. Very good. Real quickly, we've got just a couple of minutes here before our, our mid-hour break. I'll pick up another one from Chris in the U.K. He says, uh, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Philippians 3.13, that, that wording's a little unusual to us, and I'm not sure what version Chris is using there. I think it'll sound uh, probably more familiar if I read the King James Brethren. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of, Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. He says this is used by many churches to justify not dealing with problems or sin in the church. I don't know if I've heard it used that way. Mine, what do you think? I don't think I've ever heard it used that way. I could see how maybe someone would want to twist it out of context to try to say that, but that's not at all what he's talking about. I think what he's saying is he's done good in his life from the time he's become a Christian up to this point here, but he realizes that it doesn't matter how much good he's done in the past, he's got to continue to do good or otherwise he's not going to receive that reward of heaven. And so... But saying forgetting the things which are past, you know, if I've got sins in my past, I've got to correct them. I've got and to make them right. Otherwise, I've got to repent of them. And if I don't, then I haven't fixed anything and I don't have that home in heaven. And it would be a real twist of the scriptures to argue that Paul was saying that he hadn't taken care of his past sins. Yeah. Paul had completely turned his life around. It wasn't like he just forgot about it. I mean, he often talked about it and had made a complete 180. He was living a totally different life. He had certainly repented of his wrongs, and so to say that he was saying you don't have to worry about past wrongs would be very contradictory to his own example. That's right, because he's really saying it doesn't matter what I've done that's good, I've got to keep doing good. Yeah, exactly right. All right, we're uh, up to our half-hour break. We'll take that now. When we come back, we want your input. We're getting a little chatter in the chat room. Uh, uh, We need to hear some more. Send us an email. Give us a call. Uh, the number is 877-381-4567. The email is questions at collegeview.com. Get in the chat room. One way or another, we need to hear from you after the break. Don't go anywhere. You might miss something. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Although most Christians wouldn't say it in so many words, many parents seem to be quite concerned about things that might make their kids look different. They're concerned about raising their kids in strict, disciplined ways that might make them stand out in contrast to others. They mistakenly feel they need to have their kids blend in with kids at school and so forth. Well, let's see about that. Statistics indicate that 13% of teens in America have had sex before their 15th birthday. And 70% have had intercourse before they reach 20. You say you don't want your kids to be different? Really? Are you sure about that? Furthermore, 6.5% of 8th graders, 17% of 10th graders... 23% of 12th graders have used marijuana in the past month. 28% of 12th graders reported getting drunk in the past month. But you say, I don't want my kids to be different? Are you kidding? 35% of teenage boys and 26% of teenage girls admit to shoplifting. 83% say they've lied to their parents about something significant. And 64% admitted to cheating on tests. Yet you're still worried about your kids being different? How can that be? Why are parents so worried about their children being viewed as normal in such a wicked, immoral world? Now is the time to be teaching them, training them, and helping them to realize that pleasing God will require a way of life that is truly different, even weird, by the norms of the ungodly society that surround us. If you don't instruct them in their youth to come out from among them and be separate, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, 
Don't be surprised if they reach adulthood without a true and sacrificial love for God. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Trent Haynes, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a reminder about the update mailing list for the virtual Bible study. Every Thursday, shortly after noon, an email message is sent out with information about the topic for discussion on that evening's program. You're invited to start sending feedback and comments that are then included during the broadcast. If you'd like to be added to our update list, just send a message to questions at collegeview.com and put add me to the list in the subject line. That's all there is to it. Now that you've had your break, it's back to the program. And we're back for the final half hour of the Virtual Bible Study, Thursday night, May the 16th, 2013. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, many are listening live. We, we know that we get a lot of people listening in our archive and podcast forms. And so we're glad for all who participate and listen and take part in the Virtual Bible Study. Um, we we do want to reiterate, as we always do about this time in the program, that this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can find out more about the College View Church of Christ at our website, collegeview.com. College View spelled funny, C-O-L-L-E-G-E-V-U-E. It's not spelled V-I-E-W, it's spelled V-U-E. It's one word, College View, with a, the view spelled V-U-E. And our website is collegeview.com. We'd be glad for you to check out uh, some of the resources that we have there and find out more about us. We'd be glad to also talk to you in person. If you have questions, give us a call, send us an email. We'd be glad to talk to you about any questions you have concerning the work at the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. All right, we're talking about most misused Bible verses. In the chat room, Jacob, who's absent from this chair tonight, but he's in the chat room, has suggested that Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 needs to be on the list. I would agree. Ramona in Texas had that as her number one most misused Bible verse. Uh, let's go to that. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, Monty. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All right. Um, Ramona says it's used by so many denominations in a misunderstanding of God's grace. Do we have no personal responsibility to obey God, she asked. Uh, I think she's right. It is misused that way to suggest that there's really nothing to do. It it's, goes close in hand with what we were talking about earlier about faith only uh, salvation, those who teach that. They would like this verse as well. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What they like to key in on especially there is it's not of works. But, Monty, you say people have to be baptized. I'm telling you, that's a, this is, I'm, I'm making their argument. Yeah. You, when you say that a person has to be baptized, that's a work, man. And this says it's not of works. And so you're wrong about baptism, money. Well, and, the, and the, they, they stopped one verse too soon. Because in verse 10 it says, We are workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Baptism is one of those works that God had prepared beforehand that we're supposed to do. Uh, the Bible also talks about faith or belief being a work. And, and most people would say that all you have, the people that would say that by grace only would say that you have to believe. Well, if belief is a work, then that's works too. Yeah. But verse 10 in this same scripture that they want to throw out here, that it's grace only or belief only, says that we were created for works, that works that God had prepared. It's not that we're going to justify ourselves through works because I can't do enough good to make up for the sin that I've done. Jesus had to do that. But I do have works that I'm supposed to be doing, nevertheless. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And what I really think is important is where verse 9, it explains the kind of works that are not involved here. 
the kind of works that are not part of your salvation, not of works lest any man should boast. In other words, there's no works by which you could brag and boast and say, look at me, look what I've done. I've earned my salvation by virtue of this compilation of good works that I've been able to accomplish. There's no such works. And baptism would be on that list. Baptism is not a work that earns your salvation. You could be baptized a million times, and it wouldn't earn you salvation. Uh, and so he's, there are the kind of works when it says not of works, lest any man should boast, he tells what kind of works he has in mind there. They're, they're works, meritorious works, works whereby you would earn your salvation. But as you said, Monty, faith is considered a work. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 28 says, They said to him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered, saying to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Faith is believing called, his work. Believing his work. I often make the case that confession is clearly a work, but almost everybody believes that you have to confess Jesus. But yep. when, I, when I say, when I actually form the words and vocalize this, the phrase, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I've actually expended some calories to do that. Not many, but it, it, it took some energy. It was actually a physical act. It required that the that, that various muscles and parts of my body act in such a way to get that out. I actually did something when I said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's work. You know, I don't remember the exact wording of the definition of work in a scientific way from when I was in school, but it, impo- it implies the ability or that you would expend a certain amount of energy to, to move something. Well, you've expended a certain amount of energy to move your mouth and your tongue and, every, and your vocal cords and everything that's involved in making words. And so the confession that Jesus is Christ and our Savior is, by definition, work. That's right. All right. Anthony, you got anything on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I th- that that was on my list, too. Um, it's just a shame that I just I can't believe that people want to just get hung up on that and, and can't just see the, the very simple points that you made. I mean, it's it's obvious that the works that are under discussion there are works as you said, that you would that would be worthy of bragging about. Who's going to go around bragging that they were dunked underwater? That's not that. I mean, of all things, I mean, it it, it doesn't mean anything outside of the context of of obeying God. So why would you boast about that? So uh, it just it boggles my mind, and it's a real shame that millions of millions of people um, have misunderstood that verse. Yeah. I got to give you a, 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 an extra star on your report card uh, because you've hit the top three, bang, bang, bang on your list. So, very good. Uh, so, yeah, I think we've got that, and and we appreciate Ramona's suggestion. Jacob in the chat room, Ephesians two eight and nine. That's got to be on our list. All right, let's go. Let's let's take another one here. We're gonna we're not gonna get to cover all these. We never imagined that we probably would. Uh, but Rodney has suggested, and we're going to do this real quick, Monty. Rodney has suggested Matthew 18, verse 20 is a verse that is misused. I have to agree with him about this. I don't know that it's one of the most horribly misused verses or that has the, maybe as, as significant a consequence as some of the others. But Matthew 18, 20 says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I, am I in the midst of them. Rodney says this verse is frequently used to refer to communal worship 
However, it is in the context of church discipline. Jesus is making a point about the authority of his people to discipline brothers who are in sin and unrepentant. I think he's right. The, the context of that, if you back up all the way to verse 15, uh, if your brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two or or if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is heaven. Or where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. It's not talking about worship. I've heard, I'm, I have to agree with Rodney. I've heard that verse used plenty of times to talk about, well, we're going camping this weekend, Monty, but there'll be two or three of us there. We'll just have our own worship service there in the campground because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We can do that because that verse says we can have our worship wherever we want as long as there are two, at least two of us. We can have our own worship service. Yeah, but the context of this isn't talking about worship at all. No, it's, all. it's talking about serving God in another way by disciplining unruly members. Yeah. So I think Rodney's right on that. I, uh, I, would, I wouldn't have had that on my list. And, again, I don't know that it's – it is a frequently misused verse. Yeah. I agree about that. I, I don't know that the consequences of it are maybe as severe as some of these other things we've been talking about, but it is misused. All right. Uh, we're going to go to another one. And, and, Anthony, this one was on your your list too, but Joshua in Kokomo, Indiana, has Psalm fifty-one five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He, this is often misused to teach we're born sinners. Uh, well, that that is the verse he's quoted it there. Psalm fifty-one verse five. Uh, if we were if we were talking to a Calvinist, he would talk about inherited depravity. Uh, the idea that we inherit not only sin, but also a sinful nature. We inherit sin all the way back to the original sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. And we also inherit a corrupt or sinful nature. And Psalm 51.5 would be a favorite verse for them to use about that. Well, it's actually talking about his mother's sin, not his sin. When he says in sin, his mother conceived him. He was talking about sins that his mother had done in her life. It, It had no reference at all, the sin part. Of David at the point of his conception. He wasn't talking about him having inherited any iniquity. It's just talking about, yes, we are born into a sinful world. We can't dispute that. People sin all the time. We've all sinned. Those of us that's developed enough mental capability to be disobedient, we've sinned. But that's not, we didn't inherit that. We chose that. Yeah. He, uh, kind of interestingly, Joshua goes on to say David refutes that idea himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, you remember when the infant child died that was born to Bathsheba? Mm-hmm. He said, now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. In other words, David suggested the, the idea that he believed the child was safe yeah. now that he died. It died as an innocent as infant, an innocent infant. Uh, and would be safe. There are other verses. Joshua mentions uh, Ezekiel 18. And verse 20, uh, which is a great one. Everybody ought to remember that verse. Ezekiel 18, verse uh, 20 says, 
the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Uh, that's a great verse. In the New Testament, Matthew 19, verse 14, Joshua suggests, teaches the innocence of children. Jesus said, this is Matthew 19, 14, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So uh, that's a misused verse, I think. If you look at Matthew 18, verse 3, it's, Jesus is talking, says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus tells us we've got to be like little children. We've got to develop that innocence in our life and get... And he talks about converted. It's not the way we are now, but we've got to change and become like that. All right. Anthony, what you got? Yeah, I agree. I, I you know, I think this is, is really troubling because this doctrine, you know, is so far reaching and it has so many consequences. Just to take this from this this verse and others, um, but to me it's just you know, it clearly contradicts those passages that you guys mentioned. So there's gotta be when we have what appears to be a contradiction you know, we need to let the, the plainer passages interpret the more uh, complicated passages. And there's plenty of other things, as Monty mentioned, that that Psalms verse could mean. It uh, does mean it's not this idea. And, and just I, to imagine that a, an infant, you know, bo- you know, is the second it's born or even conceived is 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 condemned to eternal punishment just I, I can't fathom that don't you think that this constitutes sort of the classic idea of twisting the scriptures no i'm going to take this verse although there are other plain verses that teach the innocence of children i'm going to take this verse and i'm going to i'm going to wrench down on that uh, to make it teach the idea of an inherited depravity and inherited sin that's that's really twisting the scriptures. Well, the construction of the verse grammatically, we have to con- even just twist the con- grammatical construction to make it say that. Yeah. All right, we're going to take our final break. We'll come back and we'll go to the top of the hour. We've got several more verses. We probably won't get them all, but we got a lot of suggestions. But I think, Anthony, you're running. You, you Of all of our uh, email submissions, you are tops with hitting uh, the most. You, We've talked about about six, and you had four of them as your top four. So good, good, good job. We'll continue when we come back from this break. Wow, it isn't so hard to understand the Bible after all. There's more exciting study and discussion coming after these messages. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Young people's unprecedented level of self-infatuation was revealed in a new analysis of the American Freshman Survey, which has been asking students to rate themselves compared to their peers since 1966. Over the last four decades, there's been a dramatic rise in the number of students who describe themselves as being above average in the areas of academic ability, drive to achieve, mathematical ability, and self-confidence. However, researchers found a disconnect between the students' opinion of themselves and actual ability. Psychologist Gene Twigg says what's really become prevalent over the last two decades is the idea that being highly self-confident, loving yourself, believing in yourself is the key to success. Now, the interesting thing about that belief is that while it's widely held, it's very deeply held, but it's also untrue. That information is via the Daily Mail. The Word of God says in Romans 12, verse 3, 
I say to you through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. This is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. How about logging off of Facebook and getting into God's book? The virtual Bible study. Study continues. We've got to get get our uh, levels up here. Welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study. We've got about 10 or 12 minutes left here. We'll be glad to hear from you by email uh, in the chat room with a phone call. We're talking about most misused Bible verses. Anthony, I want to go to your uh, email and pick up one uh, from Luke 23:43. And I know you're talking about the thief on the cross, right? Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, this is this has got to be one that's pretty high up there too. And you know, in the denominational world where we have people again, like we we're talking about with Ephesians two eight and nine, hung up on this idea of salvation essentially through faith alone, or or really in this in the case of the thief on the cross, you know, salvation without baptism. See, you know, you don't have to be baptized. That guy wasn't baptized. Yeah. So, uh, but again, I think with a lot of these, really surprisingly to me, with a lot of these, just a simple, um, you just take it a few more steps further and you'll see clearly, you know, it's not like these are complicated or very hard to interpret verses if we just look at the rest of Scripture and and look into it a little more. I think you're exactly right. The, the, the thief on the cross, that, that's got to be way up there on the list, Monty, because it's so commonly misused. Yeah, everybody, you, they say, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Well, personally, I don't want to be saved like him because I have no desire to be crucified. I mean, <laughs> how, yeah, how, how far are you going to take that? I mean, do you have to be nailed to a cross yeah. to be saved like the thief on the cross? Or, or even if you wanted to say it in today's uh, physical punishment kind of thing, I don't want to be thrown in prison. You know, today we would put a, priest, a thief in prison. Well, I don't want to be put in prison. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a thief to begin with. I don't anything to do with this man. The only thing that you can say commendable about him was that he finally came to his senses and asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into the kingdom, basically to forgive him and, and to accept him. And Jesus says, "Surely I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise." Well, as far as the thief on the cross goes, there's a very good chance he was a Jew, practicing Jew, and so I don't want to have to be a Jew because if we, as we've been studying the uh, the law of Moses and the requirements for all the sacrifices and ceremonial things they have to do or had to do i couldn't keep up with it uh the way i've lived my past i would be in a bankrupt man trying to come up with enough offerings to made up for my things that i'd done wrong so that wouldn't have worked for me i don't want to be saved like that uh i don't want to be crucified or anything like that but when jesus made this statement today you'll be with me in paradise jesus had already repeatedly in his life forgiven people of their sins and pointed out through the miracles that he done that he had the authority to forgive people of their sins well, people don't want to focus and say, I want to be saved like those people. They don't mention that. I think now but that, that's where Jesus was at this point. He had the authority to, in whatever manner he wanted to, to forgive people's sins, and he'd done that. This was just another example of it. Exactly right. I, I think that is so important here. Jesus was still alive on earth. He could grant forgiveness under any terms that he wanted. The thief on the cross is not the only person whose sins he forgave. Uh, uh, for instance, in Mark chapter 2, they brought him a man who was sick of the palsy, a paralytic, a paralyzed man. And it says there, um, and this is Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. 
Well, there's there's somebody that Jesus forgave. I mean, why why concentrate on the thief on the cross? Why not some of these other episodes where Jesus forgave people? But the fact of the matter is, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16, it says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. The idea of that's very plain. While I'm alive, I don't have much, but while I'm alive, I can give away what I've got to anybody on any terms that I want. But after I've died, the only way people can get something that was mine is by virtue of my will, my testament. And that's the same with Jesus. While Jesus was alive, he could grant forgiveness on any way to anyone, any time that he wanted. But after his death, the only way to receive that blessing is in compliance with the testament that he left behind and, and the plan for salvation that he is spelled out there. All right. Any other thoughts, Monty? Well, I was just thinking what uh, the thief on the pro- cross, he had that special exception made for him. But Paul taught that now God used to overlook ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to be obedient to Jesus. Yeah, to be Acts, baptized. Acts 17, 30. Yeah. Uh-huh. So in Acts 17, whatever conditions the thief had, those are, that was in the past. And by the time of Acts 17, those wouldn't have qualified anymore. All right. Very good. All right, moving quickly, I, I got one here from Chris in Atlanta that I think does deserve to be high up on the list. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Now, let me tell you the way that this is often misquoted. It's not only misused, it's misquoted. Money is the root of all evil. Uh, Chris says 1 Timothy 6, 10 is perverted to say that money is the cause of all evil, and we are in sin if we desire making money. Instead, the verse states that the love of money is the root of all evil. There's nothing wrong with looking for ways to make more money as long as it's done properly and with the correct attitude of heart. I think he's right here. Uh, it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. First Timothy 6, verse 10 says the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The previous verse says they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So you could be a you could be a penniless person and have the problem that this passage is talking about. The the, the over compelling drive to have money and the things money can buy, the love of money. That's what produces all kinds of evil. And but people not only misuse that verse, they misquote that verse money. Yeah. And as in the New King James, it says they've strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it's this idea of greed, which the scriptures condemns over and over, to the point that I got I want more money, I got to have more money, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. I don't care who I have to to abuse and misuse to get it. I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to be rich because this verse nine talking about this desire to be rich. I've got to do it. And so we put, and we neglect God in doing that. We, we're not going to worry about being at services because I've got to work. I've got to have 15 jobs and so work 1,000 hours a week So because I've got to have that money. But we neglect everything else, and we don't keep the other the commands that God's given us because of our greed for money. Exactly right. So that one's, that one's certainly deserving to be on the list. Anthony, I'm going back to your list to pick up Revelation 20, verses 1 and following about the 1,000-year reign. Man, that's got to be misused. Because how many people we know, uh, Anthony, who believe in premillennialism? Almost everybody these days does. Right, right. I know that's, again, some of these verses that they're so far-reaching in their impact. Um, yeah, and this has got to be one of them. And, um, you know, 
I think the interesting thing about this premillennialism is that so many people don't really realize that that's what they've bought into. Uh, for example, you know, I grew up in a in a denomination, and uh, I didn't really realize that. And this kind of stuff was was taught to a degree, but not very much. So I didn't really realize that that this was what I was, um, you know, this is what these people were were teaching. But it's very prevalent. Very exactly prevalent. right. The, and Revelation 20 is the only passage in in the New Testament that teaches anything about a thousand year reign. Um, Verse 3 mentions the thousand years. Verse 4 mentions the thousand years. But when I'm, when I'm talking about this passage with people, what I like to point out is, of course, the whole book of Revelation, highly figurative, tremendous amount of symbolic or figurative language in Revelation. Chapter 20 just screams out that it's a figurative passage. The first verse, for instance, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit. Well, could you have a literal bottomless pit? No. You could, I mean, that's a physical impossibility. So that has to be figurative, right? And then it talks, he had a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Well, is there a literal chain that could bind Satan? No. Satan's a spirit being. You can't bind him with a literal chain. So the whole passage, the whole context is talking figuratively. It's talking about a long, peaceful reign of Christ over his spiritual kingdom, the church. It's not literal, and it's certainly not talking about Jesus coming back to earth to establish a physical kingdom on earth, to reign on David's throne in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years. i got to tell you, if so many people believe that, and this very shadowy passage is the only one that even mentions it. It's, it's amazing to me how how much that text has been misused. That's got to be way up on the list of most misused passages, simply by virtue of the number of people, the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians these days are believing in premillennialism. And it's amazing how in just a few short verses here, so many volumes of books and so such a huge amount of false teaching could be generated from something that, like you say, it's a figurative passage to begin with. The meaning of it may be difficult to understand, but it's obviously not talking about what they're saying. Oh, exactly right. Um, oh, we got. Oh man, we're just about out of time. Um, real quickly, um, well, I just don't know which. Uh, uh, I'm looking at Chris in the UK since he was the one that initiated this idea for our program, and I was going to pick up another one of his. Um, I'll, I'll just do this one. We just got time maybe to cover this one, Monty. He suggests. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says it's used to make light of sin. Don't feel guilty over your sin. After all, everybody does it. What do you think? That, that would certainly be a misuse of the text. I, I've not heard it used that way. Of course, Chris is on the other side of the globe. He, he's, he's, he's running into some false teachers that are maybe different, use some different tactics than we do here. But he says they use that to suggest, don't worry about it. Everybody sins. Well, that's not what it's saying here that, uh, that it's an okay thing that we've sinned because the scriptures constantly teach us that we're supposed to repent of our sins. And if it's an okay thing, God, Jesus, God and Jesus wouldn't have told us we needed to repent. We've got to change our life and, and correct the things that we've done wrong. And just because everybody's done it doesn't mean it's a good thing to do. Because I, I mean, we use that excuse for something we want to do when we're kids and we're t- asking mom and daddy, can I go do whatever? No, you can't do it. Well, why not? Everybody else is doing it. Well, that doesn't make it a good reason. I mean, if we're going to go by the majority, the Bible teaches us not to follow the majority to to, to do mischief or, 
or to do evil. So the fact that all of us have sinned isn't something we can be proud of. It's something we need to be ashamed of, and yeah. we need to quit doing it. If you think it's not a big deal, all, I, I like to link Romans three twenty three for all of sin and come short of the glory of God with Romans six verse twenty three for the wages of sin is death. So all of sin. And we and all earn death. All deserve to die. That's not something to, to joke about or take lightly. It's a very serious matter. It'd be a bad misuse of the scripture to take Romans three twenty three and say, since everybody's done it, no big deal. Don't worry about it. Well, we're out of time. We we had a lot of verses. We covered several of them, and I think I tried to pick out of the emails the ones that were recurring ones. I think we've hit some very badly misused Bible texts. Uh, uh, Henry S. in the chat room says the Bible itself is misused by many. I, I think you could kind of say that. They just, the Bible in general is misused by people, and that's sad. And we're supposed to be careful to handle aright the Word of God. Uh, rightly dividing the Word of truth is the way that, that Paul said it to Timothy. Um, in Second Timothy 2, verse 15, he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing. Other versions says, handling aright the Word of God. It's our job to handle the Word of God carefully and accurately. Uh, we can't just misuse it to suit our own purposes. We can't take Bible verses and twist them to try and teach a conclusion that we want. You know, rather than twisting the Bible to try to get it to say what we want, we need to be twisting our life to conform it back to what the Bible tells us to do. All right, very good. Thanks for being with us tonight, Monty. Anthony, thanks for being with us tonight. Appreciate your participation. Thanks. An excellent topic, and, you know, it was a lot of fun. It's not a trivial matter, as we pointed out. It's definitely not uh, not trivial, but uh, but it, it, it was a good study. I'm glad we did it. All right. Thanks to everybody for listening tonight. We appreciate your participation in the Virtual Bible Study. We hope you'll be back with us next week, Lord willing, for another version of the Virtual Bible Study. Until that time, as Jacob often says, uh, study your Bibles, read it, live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Hope to see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.